Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of pinball wizards. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today I think we have a pretty fun episode ahead of us because we are talking about game centers or Japanese arcades. These are just one of those things that you're bound to see if you take a trip to Japan. They are everywhere. So we're going to talk about their history, what there is to do at these places, and maybe some tips on how to win. Yeah, what types of games you can find there. But before we get to that, we have a quick announcement to make. So if you've been listening to the podcast, you've probably heard us talk about the JR Pass. Paul, can you tell us what the JR Pass is? The JR Pass is for foreign tourists in Japan to buy a 7-day or 14-day pass that lets you ride on all the JR line trains, including the Shinkansen, yeah, bullet the, trains. Exactly, the high-speed trains that can get you everywhere in Japan, like between all the big cities across the country. Yeah, and JR lines are a huge number of train lines. It's not every single train line in every city, but it's a lot of them. It makes it really easy because you got the pass. You don't need to buy a train ticket for every little train you're taking. You just get your pass and you just ride as much as you want. Yeah, it's unlimited within that time period. So we always recommend this pass to anybody that's planning on traveling long distances within Japan because it can save you a lot of money. And you know it's great for making the most of your trip, especially if you're interested in seeing a lot of different places and kind of exploring the country. I've personally used the JR Pass every single time I've been to Japan. Same here. So just as a rule of thumb, if you're doing a round trip between Tokyo and Kyoto, for example, or an equivalent distance, you're going to save money getting the JR Pass. It's just the smart thing to do. So we've mentioned this pass in a bunch of different episodes, and apparently JRPass.com noticed that we are fans because they contacted us and asked us to be a part of their affiliate program. So what this means is if you're going to Japan and you're planning on getting a JR Pass, you can help support the podcast at the same time by going to our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com, and in the navigation bar you'll see Travel Tools. It's a new page on our website, and there's a link there where you can go to jrpass.com and buy the pass. So there's no extra cost to you. The price is exactly the same as if you were to just buy it from their website directly. But if you go through our website, a small portion of your purchase will go to the podcast to help us continue making episodes about all the cool stuff there is to see in Japan. So why not, right? Right. And you put a lot of other cool stuff on the website too. So there's more than just that. There's a whole bunch of travel tools that will help you in Japan. Yes. Thank you, Paul. If you go to that travel tools page that I mentioned, that new, that's a new thing on our website. And I posted a bunch of links to products and services that I've personally used that might help you if you're planning a trip to Japan. So for example, I mean, there's the JR Pass stuff, of course, but also pocket Wi-Fi. You know, if you want to have internet with you at all times on your trip, we have links to places you can get that. If you need to look up train schedules, that's super important and useful in Japan. And there's a link to a website where you can do that for free. We have links to places where you can book tours. We have a link to Kyushu Journeys. 
If you listen to episode 54, where we interviewed Simon and Moo, we have a link to their website. I was thinking about maybe putting a packing list on there. Like I have a personal packing list that I always use to kind of make sure that I'm not forgetting something that I might need on my trip. Yeah, there's always that one thing. Like, all right, I got everything. And then I get there and like, oh no, where's my deodorant? Yeah. Yeah, so I use the same list every single time I go, just to be sure. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. So yeah, if you need help planning your trip, hopefully you'll find something useful there. And if you have any specific questions, you can also always reach out to us. You know, we have a contact page on our website, or you can send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. So I poked around on the JR Pass website. Yeah. And I didn't even really realize this before, but they've got over 20 local passes too. So if you're staying in Hokkaido for a few days, you can buy a Hokkaido pass that gets you just around all the JR lines in Hokkaido. Yeah, for they have set regional amounts ones. of time. So there's a whole bunch of those too if you're staying in different places. Yeah, they also offer Wi-Fi, actually, the pocket Wi-Fi. Yeah, I saw that. And I was like, that'd be kind of convenient. You could pick that up right when you're getting your pass, since you're getting your pass anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can provide a bunch of stuff to help you out. Um, so finally, there was one more new page on our website that I wanted to mention, and that's uh, the donate page. You know, maybe you're not getting a JR pass, but maybe you still want to help support the podcast. Well, you can do that. I go into the donate page and there's a little button on there that you can click to donate to the podcast. It's, it's very simple. You can use a credit card, debit card. You can use PayPal. You can even set up like recurring monthly donations if you want to. Just throwing that out there. And of course, this isn't something that we expect from our listeners. But, you know, if you get some value out of the podcast, if we helped you plan your trip or whatever, and you want to give back, we would really appreciate it. Now, the podcast is free to listen to, of course, but it's not free to produce and to put out there into podcast land. So anything you want to throw our way would be awesome. Okay, I think that's the end of my spiel. All right. Thanks for listening to our announcement, everyone. And now let's talk about game centers. Yes. Arcades seem to suit the city life, especially in Japan, I think, because... With their public transit and the way people are walking, you might just be walking by an arcade. You've got 15 minutes to kill before your train arrives. You know, you just pop in and play a couple games real quick. Yeah, they definitely do seem more popular in Japan than they are in most of the rest of the world. And that's probably one of the one of the big reasons. You can see large, multi-storied arcades like in all, every major city in Japan. Yeah, it's still a really big industry there. And I saw that part of the reason for that might be that the arcades themselves are actually owned by the game developers. So those big companies like Sega, Taito, Namco, and Capcom, they've like invested in these arcade locations. And a lot of them are really close to train stations or just really busy places. So since they've already invested, they just keep churning out more and more games to make sure people are still interested and want to go to these places and i mean they're really cool places like they put a lot into making these really fun places to go there's all these flashing lights there's a lot of noise it's kind of easy to mistake a pachinko parlor for an arcade they're similar in that way lights and noise yeah i'd say so 
They're similar in a lot of ways, probably. Mm -hmm. And they have these amazing, really immersive games. And it's not even just a place to play video games. It's a destination, you know. It's a place for people to hang out, kind of a social hub, you could say. Yeah. And you mentioned that a lot of the arcades are owned by the companies that make the games. But don't worry if you're looking for an arcade. They still have games from all the different game manufacturers. If you go to a Sega arcade, it's not just Sega games Mm -hmm. inside the arcade. Actually, it used to be that way. But just recently, the industry has kind of been slowly declining. So these companies have kind of been forced to start bringing in games from all the other companies as well to make sure their arcades are diverse and interesting places. I say it's a good move. Yeah. So there's still approximately 4,000 game centers in Japan. Yeah, I saw that there are 4,856 arcades registered (laughs) with the Japan Amusement Industry Association. And there's an additional estimated 9,000, they say, unregistered places with less than 50 machines each. So maybe those are kind of the smaller things in like hotels or movie theaters or whatever. Yeah, I think like Bowling Alley has like 20 machines in the back. Right, right. But the peak of the arcade industry was really around the 1980s when there were around 44,000 arcades in Japan. (laughs) That's so many. Yeah. I mean, they're not all like five-story tall arcades. There's a lot of small arcades in small cities or indie arcades too. Mm -hmm. The arcade industry today is worth about 450 billion yen a year, which is a lot of money. Yeah. It's about $4.5 billion, give or take. Mm -hmm. That's a massive industry. It is. Well, I think everybody more or less knows what an arcade is, so they have some reference for what we're going to be talking about here. So let's move on to some history of arcades or game centers in Japan. Okay. So the farthest back thing I could find is that some people equate the origins of game centers in Japan all the way back to the carnival-type games that the Japanese play at their local festivals. Totally. Got things like Ring Toss or that one where you got all these prizes lined up and you shoot a cork at it out of a gun. I mean, it's similar to arcade games in the sense that you pay a small fee, you know, 100 yen or whatever, and you get to play a game and maybe win a prize. The thought I can't get over now is if you go back to festivals in Edo, Japan, did they have like a little bow and arrow with a little cork on the end that you like shot at bottles or something to knock over? How far back does that game go? That's a good question. Like, I wonder how old those games are that they play nowadays at those festivals. They upgraded during the Meiji Revolution. We need to, we need to change the game to a little gun game now. <laughs> yeah, guns for everyone. <laughs> Uh, So in the first half of the 1900s or so, apparently there was a trend for department stores to put game machines and amusement areas on their roofs. It makes sense. In a densely packed country like that, where real estate's valuable, you got a whole roof you're not making any money on. Throw some games up there. And I think it helped, you know, tire your kids out. The parents could relax. They even sometimes had games for parents, too, while your kids run around and get tired. And then you can go home and they stop bugging you. Sure. It's smart. Yeah, it's basically, just imagine like a little carnival on the roof of this big building. And, you know, in the early 1900s, of course, we're not talking about electronic video games. 
a lot of the entertainment up there would be things like seesaws or Ferris wheels, ropeways. But uh, what I saw was they had these mechanical coin-operated games that were probably the closest thing to arcade games at that time. And a lot of the ones in that time period seem to have been based on a ball kind of bouncing around between metal pins. It reminded me a lot of Pachinko. Mm. Or like a pinball sort of idea, you know? Yep. So then around the 1950s, we start to see some important companies popping up. For example, Namco, which is still a big name in arcades these days. They got their start in 1955 when they made two rocking horses to put on the top of a department store in Yokohama. I think these rocking horses were those kinds of machines where you set your kid on the horse, put in a coin, and it kind of rocks, gives them a little ride, you know? Yeah. Those machines seem so lame, but maybe when you're like a little kid, they actually seem so big and fun. I guess. I mean, you you still see those around in like older malls, I feel like. Yeah, you do. You do. So did you know, Jason, that Sega wasn't originally a Japanese company? I didn't until I did this research. Same here. Same here. Founded in Hawaii to supply games to American bases in Japan. Yeah, military bases. Yes. Crazy. And I also thought it was interesting where the name came from. I didn't see that. Oh, so at first the company was called Standard Games, but then it moved to Japan in 1952 and they renamed it Service Games of Japan. So Service Games became Sega in the 60s. Okay. Yeah, and it got bought out by a Japanese company or Japanese people, right? That was that was my understanding. I think so. I think it's I mean it's fully Japanese now, right? Yeah. They have yeah. divisions in other countries, but um so they Sega was also making games for these rooftop entertainment areas in the mid nineteen hundreds. And uh you know, in some places in Japan you can actually see remnants of these rooftop entertainment things. Like when I was in Sapporo, I rode a there's this famous Ferris wheel on top of a department store in Susukino. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, you still see a few remnants of it around today. It seems to be most of the rooftop arcades have been closing down lately as the industry shrinks a little bit, um, especially because a lot of them are old and it's like, oh, invest a whole bunch of money bringing this back up to current standards. Mm-hmm. It's not really worth it for some of them, so that's too bad. Yeah, But there's still a few around, I heard. Yeah. So after World War II, this was a time of rapid development in Japan and you started to see more coin-operated mechanical games. So in 1965, Sega released a game called Periscope. It was apparently a big hit in Japan, as well as Europe and North America. It was basically a submarine simulator where you tried to sink ships. But, you know, at this point, we're talking 60s. They didn't have video screens yet, you know. We're, we're still a decade or so away from actual video games. So how do you make an arcade game without a screen? It's entirely mechanical. These things were ingenious, the way they built them and designed them. It's incredible. Yeah. They called them electromechanical games. But really, the electronics were just used for really basic things, like some lighting effects, scorekeeping. But the core of the game, the actual gameplay, was purely mechanical. I like the one where you're racing a motorcycle on a road, and it kind of looks like an 80s video game yeah. but it's in real life and there's this track that's like a treadmill that runs and you drive your 
motorcycle left and right on it. And if you accelerate, there's other motorcycles you're racing and you like speed up relative to them. And it actually looks and feels like you're accelerating, even though your little guy is just on a treadmill. Yeah, like the treadmill speeds up when you hit the throttle. So you're seeing the lines go by faster and it yeah. actually gives you that illusion of speed. Yeah. Really cool. I Like how they made that all work mm-hmm. into a, a mechanical machine is so awesome. Totally. Looking at those, I feel like they really inspired later video games. It felt like early arcade electronic video games. You could clearly tell they were just taking a game, that game that already existed and putting it onto a screen. Totally. Yeah, I was going to say, like, if you didn't know that the mechanical games came first, you would think that people saw a video game and is like, how can we recreate this in real life, in 3D? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so now we're up to the 1970s. Finally, actual video games started making an appearance. And the technology for playing purely electronic video games on screens had actually been developed in the U.S. over the previous two decades. But the 70s was when video games first became accessible to the general public. In 1978, Space Invaders was released, and it changed everything in Japan. It was massive. Everybody loved this game. Taito, who developed it, sold more than 100,000 machines in just that first year it was released. It is still considered one of the most influential video games of all time. And if you're not familiar with Space Invaders, Paul, can you describe how that game works? Yeah. You are in what I believe is a spaceship, and you are at the bottom of the screen. You can move left, you can move right, and you can shoot. And Space Invaders... Little aliens and spaceships start coming down the screen from the top, and you have to move back and forth and shoot them before they get to you, mm-hmm. or before they reach the bottom. There's a little more to it than that, but that's basically what you do. Yeah, it's super simple. And I think that's one of the things that made it so popular is that you don't need to read instructions or anything. You just start playing, and it's intuitive. You know, you just know exactly what to do. Yeah, one of the great things about arcade games is the over the shoulder. You could just walk by and see someone playing and just understand what's happening. Oh, I want to play that game. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is see one person play at once and you know exactly what you're supposed to do. Yeah. It was so popular. They were trying to play everywhere. Even like coffee houses were putting in little little space invader tables that you could play out while you drank your coffee. Yeah, the screen is actually built into the surface of the table. Yeah. Pretty cool. <laughs> so the other person could watch if you're like eating together. Mm-hmm. So the popularity of this game is really what made video game arcades start to pop up for the first time. And the first ones you started to see had nothing but Space Invaders. It was the only game you could play there. And they at first they called them Inbeda House. That's my favorite part. <laughs> Inbeda Houseu. Invader House. I love it. Yeah. So they weren't called Game Centers. They were Invader Houses. Yep, not yet. Uh, So before we move on, I do want to just mention some interesting stuff I learned about Taito, the company that created Space Invaders. So they are still a very big name in arcades in Japan, and they're very recognizable, their arcades these days, because they say Taito Station on the front, and their logo is actually a giant Space Invader on the building. And this is another company that had a really interesting history that I had no idea about. Did you know that Taito is another company 
That is not Japanese. No. It at least didn't start out as Japanese. Where are they from? It was founded by a guy named Michael Kogan. He was a Ukrainian Jewish businessman who came to Japan via Manchuria, where his family fled to escape the Russian Revolution. Oh, wow. Yeah. When you said Michael Kogan, I was definitely thinking like American or something. I was yeah. not thinking Ukrainian yeah. from that name. Uh, and when Taito started out in the 50s, they were importing vodka and vending machines and jukeboxes. <laughs> of course it's vodka. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. They didn't get into video games until 1973. Okay. And then they just knocked it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Space Invaders kicked off the golden age of arcade games. And over time, as more games were created, those original invader houses evolved into what we now know as arcades, filling up with other popular games like Pac-Man, Donkey Kong. Yeah, Donkey Kong. Bosconian Invaders was apparently popular. I've never heard of that one. I don't know that one. Yeah. So then you started to see arcades popping up in all sorts of other places, shopping malls, restaurants, grocery stores, bars, movie theaters. The games continued to evolve over time. Shooting games started to become popular in the 1980s. Similar to Space Invaders in that you're shooting things, but uh, different controls or different way you play. Yeah, they started to come up with a lot of creative ways of interacting with these games so you know shooting games all of a sudden you have these plastic guns that you can actually shoot at the screen with or they would have racing games where you know you're riding a motorcycle and your controller is like an actual motorcycle that you're straddling and kind of leaning side to side to steer yeah i remember growing up my brothers had an original nintendo and we had duck hunt where you got to shoot the gun at the screen that That was the coolest thing ever yeah it was mind-blowing that that was possible. It was like magic. It's still mind blowing to me that they could make Duck Hunt in the eighties. Yeah, or I think they made it in the eighties. Yeah, that was always a mystery until at some point I heard about how those guns work. Have you heard about like the technology? Nope. So they call them light guns, and what's actually happening is when you're aiming at the screen and you pull the trigger on the gun, the gun is sensing the color on the screen to tell okay. if you hit what you were aiming for. So can you cheat by like finding something that's the color of ducks and just like <laughs> keep shooting it? That might be a little too technical for me. I don't know all the details, but... Uh, Someone figured it out. Yeah, pretty cool. Um, so I also saw that early on, you know, maybe around the 80s and 90s, these arcades had sort of a dingy sort of reputation. You know, at the time they were kind of dark, smoke-filled places where maybe delinquents would be known to hang out. They weren't very family-friendly places, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's definitely changed. Yeah, I think it was around the early 2000s when there was a big push for them to become more family-friendly. So these days, they're very well-lit, safe, fun places, but still very noisy. Yeah, and that being said, they're still, I think, thought of a little bit as like, oh, that's where you go to waste your time or something. It's not something that a lot of Japanese people, I think, would think, oh, that's where tourists should go spend their time. Although a lot of tourists do go there, and the game centers themselves cater to tourists. Sure. If you ask someone in town, like, oh, what should I go see? I don't think anyone's going to say the arcade. They're all going to say, oh, go see the temple or go see something like that. 
How much of that, though, is just from the locals being so used to it? It's like, oh, that's nothing special. Those are all over. You that's, know? Yeah, that, that could be. Because we don't, I mean, the arcades in Japan are nothing like what we have here. And I mean, you really need to seek out an arcade here if you want to go play arcade games. Yeah, it's one of those things where if you don't have it where you are, it always seems more cool. Mm-hmm. Totally. Like, someone came to visit you and they just want to hang out at the library you'd be like uh what's up bro but if they had no libraries where they were from they probably think it was the coolest thing ever exactly so want to talk about street fighter 2 uh okay that came out in 1991 and it just made fighting games a thing mm. like people to this day can't get over that game it's uh apparently allowed you to fight your friends rather than just fighting the computer and competing with your own self for highest score. Oh, was that, that was like the first game to do that? Yeah. Or the first one to popularize it at least. I'm not sure. Okay. But yeah, you can play your friends and that just made another big explosion in arcades and popularity. Yeah. I mean, in the eighties, nineties, two thousands, there were so many groundbreaking games, you know, I feel like the game industry has always been just really creative. There are all these companies competing. They need to come up with some new way to interact with the game or just something to hook people, something to offer an experience they've never had before. So a lot of innovations, impossible to cover every little step of that process here, but can we kind of skip ahead to around 2009? Does Does that work for you, Paul? Yeah, that works. Okay. So around 2009, Japan had a $20 billion gaming industry And that's not just arcades, that's the whole gaming industry, including consoles and PC games and stuff. So $20 billion, and $6 billion of that was from arcades. Okay. So at that point, arcades were actually even bigger than home consoles. Wow. Yeah. But since then, well, pretty much for the last 30 years or so, the industry has been in a slow but constant decline, apparently. As I mentioned, these... Video game company-owned arcades started bringing in games from the other companies as well to keep people interested. And most recently, COVID has actually had a pretty big impact on the industry, unfortunately. Yeah. So I just read an article that said part of their COVID restrictions are all arcades have to close at 8 p.m. Just, I guess, to stop people from hanging out. Restaurants and other places, it seems to be the same or bars at least, but restaurants and bars are getting help from the government, whereas arcades are not getting any sort of funding from the government. And I've actually got a quote from Yasushi Fukamachi, who's the manager of a very famous Tokyo arcade called Mikado. He says, usually after 6 p.m. until midnight is the most profitable time. Mm. So having to close at 8 p.m., means we lose our four most profitable hours. So the government not helping him, he says, is really making it a hopeless situation, Yeah, were his words. But he then added that he's innovating, he's been streaming some games and stuff, and he thinks he'll survive, but he mm-hmm. definitely thinks it's going to take a big ding in the industry. Yeah, things are definitely difficult right now. I saw that... Uh, a landmark Sega arcade in Akihabara just closed in August of 2020. And I mean, there are still a few other Sega arcades in Akihabara, but uh, that was a big loss. But like you said, 
There's always more innovations. One of those remaining arcades in Akihabara specializes in VR games, actually. That's becoming a decently big thing. That's cool. As it should, because VR is amazing. I am definitely an advocate for that. Uh, I have a yes, PlayStation VR, and it's, it's the future of gaming. There's no denying it. I can't believe it hasn't really accelerated faster, to be honest. But I hate to say I'm not sold yet, but... You will be. I just probably need to play it more. I That time I played for like 10 seconds and almost threw up. That's the thing. For some people... Kind of turned me off. Yeah, some people have like a motion sickness sort of thing. But from what I've heard, I've never really had any problems with motion sickness personally. But from what I've heard, if you just ease into it and like quit as soon as you start feeling weird, you know, you can get your body to get past that. And eventually you'll be fine with it. And I think I played the wrong game. I played Skyrim. Because you were telling me how great it was. Yeah. And I got into Skyrim. I shot like two arrows and then I ran up this big hill. And like the change in elevation without my body actually moving, it just did it. Mm-hmm. I was just done. Like I had to stop. Yeah. There are certain types of games that uh, can be more or less problematic for people with the motion sickness thing. I played some Beat Saber and that was better. Yeah. Because you're, you're stationary. There's yeah. things coming at you, but yeah. you're not really moving in an environment or anything. And you mentioned streaming games. I think I read an article where they were saying that the future of the industry might be to have like kind of a centralized hub that stores all these games and then all the machines are kind of terminals that are, uh, you know, streaming games so that you don't need, I guess it would save on infrastructure for the stuff. You don't need to buy new cabinets for everything or whatever. It's an interesting thought. Yeah. Like there'll be some challenges, but. Yeah. At least for fighting games that are similar, why not? Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It sounded like that was kind of off in the future and they didn't have tons of details about exactly how it would be implemented. But that was the impression I got is that it would, it would be a streaming sort of situation. Okay. Okay. So before we get to the games themselves, we talk about kind of just what arcades are like, what you might expect if you're walking into one of these places? Yeah, sure. So if you're looking for an arcade, they're generally pretty easy to find because like we mentioned, they're often huge multi-story buildings. You got the huge Space Invader guy up there or, you know, a giant Sega sign or something. It's pretty obvious usually. Yeah. Or if you're in a mall or whatever, they're also pretty noticeable there. Just kind of look for all those flashing lights and the noise. You know? Yeah, it's bright and noisy, like yeah. you will notice. Mm-hmm. So when you go inside, let's say you're, you're walking into one of these big arcade tower kind of places, right? You might notice that each floor is dedicated to a certain type of game. So there's probably going to be an elevator to get you between the floors. And next to that elevator, there might be a floor guide that tells you where to find whatever type of game you're looking for. And there's also going to be an indicator telling you where the change machines are. And you might want to make that your first stop because you're going to need 100 yen coins to play the games. And as I've mentioned before on the podcast, if you're a tourist in Japan, this is a great opportunity to stock up on those 100 yen coins because you can never have enough 100 yen coins. They're so useful. Mm -hmm. They always go so fast. And then you can pay with exact change wherever you go. Yep. Yeah, like you said, typical game is 100 yen, so that's reasonable, unless you play 50 times in a row, Mm -hmm. which can happen. You know, I've never really spent a a huge amount of time in an arcade at once. Like, I've been to a bunch of different arcades, and, you know, I'll play for half an hour or something, and then I kind of, 
I don't know, have other things on my schedule, I guess. But I kind of want to just do a trip to Japan where I really relax and just like spend a whole day in an arcade just messing around. Yeah. I'd even be kind of interested how much money would I spend if I just spent a day in an arcade just doing whatever I wanted at my own pace? I don't even know, but it'd be fun. Have you spent much time in arcades on the trips that you did? Not a ton of time, but you know, I blew like 20 bucks in less than an hour probably, but that probably was because I was like trying to play all the games I wanted to play real quick Mm -hmm. before I had to go see the next thing, catch the train or whatever. Yeah. We went to an arcade together. We did? I don't remember where. We did. What did we play? Pretty sure we did. I probably played the drum game. I think it was at a mall. Hmm. Yeah, I think you might have played. You might have played the drums. I do pretty much every time I go to an arcade. I maybe did a dance dance game. I think we might have been trying to find Mario Kart. We might have played Mario Kart. That's usually where Mm. I go. Yeah, maybe. go straight for the Mario Kart. Yeah. Should we talk about the types of games? Yes. And start with crane games. Yeah, Sometimes they're probably... called UFO catchers, I guess, depending on the design of the claw. Yeah, the UFO catchers is a, a very common one to see. So this is the first type of game you're likely to see because a lot of times they put them on the first floor because they really draw in people. Yeah, they're easy to play. Everybody can play them. They're big. They light up. They look cool. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an inviting game. Yeah, they're very accessible. Like they're it. also some of the most profitable games usually for the arcades too. Right. So just to describe what it is, you're probably familiar with them. They have them all over the world as far as I know. The idea is you control this claw that you can move around and you grab a prize and puts it down the chute and then you get the prize. Yeah, you have a joystick and a button. Mm-hmm. You move the claw, you hit the button, claw goes down, grabs a prize hopefully. Mm-hmm. But in Japan, they have kind of some different variations on this idea. So, you know, they have the standard ones where you're trying to grab a plushie with a claw and pick mm-hmm. it up. But there are also ones where, Paul, have you seen those ones where it's like these two kind of rubber bars going across the middle of the machine and the prize is sitting on top of the bars and you want to get the prize to drop through the bars or on the side of the bars to like drop into the prize chute? Yep, I saw that. There are other ones where the prize is hanging from a string or a paper loop, and you have to cut the loop or the paper to get the prize to drop. Or some where you have to knock something over the edge to get it. Mm -hmm. There are different types and tons of different types of prizes you can win. You know, plushies are popular, but they also have a lot of anime figurines, candy, alarm clocks, kitchenware even, like kind of just about anything. I'm pretty sure I've seen MP3 players, Mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. Anything you could imagine. Yeah. And if you listen to the Pachinko episode, you might recall we were talking about how there are restrictions on gaming in Japan. Like, normally it's illegal for arcade games to dispense money or prizes based on the player's performance. But these crane games are the one exception to that law, apparently but they still do have a restriction. There's a maximum retail value for the prizes. They oh, what's to, that? They have to be under 800 yen. Okay. So, you know, you might think, well, nothing worth having is less than 800 yen. Why do these still draw in so many people, right? But a lot of times they're putting out limited edition stuff that you can't get anywhere else. So if people see an anime character that they like, and they're like, oh, this is like the only place I can get that, 
maybe I'll stay here for an hour and spend a bunch of money trying to get that. Yeah, that's the catch too, because they rotate it quickly. So you're like, I might only have a week to get this plushie I really want, or they're going to change this machine. It's going to be something new. Right. So you keep coming back and back trying to get it. And then they switch it next week and you go back and back trying to get the new one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have experience with these types of games, say in the US, you know, I always thought of these things as kind of a scam. <laughs> like they, they never really interested me that much. But it can actually be easier to win in Japan because they want you to win. Like that might sound unrealistic, but I heard that the idea is that they don't want to frustrate people into spending a bunch of money because then they just, you know, walk away angry and they're like, oh, I didn't get anything. What's the point of ever doing that again? They want people to enjoy the process of winning so that they come back and keep playing. So one major difference between Japanese and American arcades is that if you're having trouble, you can actually go to the staff and ask them for help. They can give you tips. They might reposition the prize to make it a little easier for you to win. Or if there's a specific prize you want, you know, they can kind of rotate them and, and switch them out for you. Yep. If you accidentally get something like wedged in a corner while you're going for it, you can actually get an attendant and they'll probably put it in a spot where it's actually like reasonably possible to grab it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to have some tips and techniques on how to win these games a little later on. I'm excited for that. <laughs> I, I really want to go back to Japan and try winning this stuff with the stuff that I know about them now. What other types of games are you likely to see, Paul? Rhythm games. One of my favorites. Oh, I love rhythm games. So rhythm games requires you to use your hands or feet or your voice to get as many points as possible while staying on beat with something. Right. So think of games like Rock Band or Guitar Hero or Dance Dance Revolution, things like that. Yep. My favorite game. I mentioned that drum game. That's called Taiko no Tatsujin. And I recently found out that you can get that on PS4 and Switch. So I did. It's pretty fun. Yeah. It could be funny being in the arcade and like watch people go on all these rhythm machines because people are just going crazy. Mm-hmm. Like you could watch a middle-aged salary man in a tie start dancing to some j-pop tune on on the dance dance machine just going wild and nailing it and it's like it's exciting and fun and i like it yeah and some people are just insanely good at these games like i wonder sometimes how much money they must have spent to become so good at a game and uh i actually saw an interview with the creator of space invaders He was talking about how the industry had evolved over the years. And he said that those types of games never would have been popular 50 years ago or whatever when he started out. Because at that time, they thought that Japanese people would be too embarrassed to be playing those types of games where you're, I mean, you're basically putting on a performance for the rest of the arcade. You know, if if anybody wants to just walk up and watch you, they can. And that it kind of puts you on the spot. But I feel like these days there are a lot of people that want to perform and like they know they're really good at it and it can be really impressive. That's an interesting thought. I guess that developed with the arcade culture. You just got used to people watching you play and that might have loosened people up a little bit. So yeah, whatever, I'll dance, you know? Yeah, he seemed to imply that it also had to do with just the wider Japanese culture in general. Like younger people are more 
less reserved. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it, I think. Yeah, I think that's the case. Mm-hmm. What other types of games can you go play? Well, we mentioned fighting and racing games. Those are popular. And, you know, you can play those solo, but like you said, they're most fun playing against real people. So usually when you see these types of games, there'll be a a long row of them and you can play against people sitting next to you. Or in the case of racing games, maybe everybody in that whole row is racing at the same time against each other. So that can be pretty exciting. Yeah. Sometimes in Mario Kart, there'll be eight machines all lined up and you're all racing in the same race. That's really fun. Yeah. Uh, you've probably seen the shooting games. Like we have these in the US too, where you, it's like a booth and you get inside the booth big enough for like two people to sit side by side. You each get a gun. And Paul, have you seen the ones where they have, they call it 4D technology, where they have 3D glasses. So you're looking at a 3D screen, but then they also incorporate these other elements to make it more immersive. Like it'll blow air at you or I don't know, maybe there's something that kind of gives your seat a bump when like when something happens in the game or whatever yeah i've played games like that yeah those are pretty cool yeah they are uh, one th- cool thing about a lot of the shooting games these days is there's multiple paths you can take you can choose you know i go left here or i go straight or i go try to do this so it has more replay value because you can do a lot of different things if you play the game a second or third time mm. you know i gotta tell you about like the coolest game that I ever played in a Japanese arcade. It was a mecha fighting game. Okay. So like you're piloting a big mecha, these, you know, these giant robots that are fighting each other. And it's super immersive because you're not just standing at a arcade cabinet. You're inside this pod that's designed to look and feel like the cockpit of a mecha machine so it's got this screen that wraps around you so you can like look around in any direction and it's got these uh dual joysticks that let you steer your mecha around and you can like shoot up into the air and do all this stuff it was really really cool that seems awesome yeah another thing i was surprised to see in japan was uh i've come across a few arcades where they actually have computer games there i never saw that Yeah, like with an actual mouse and a keyboard. Uh, One of my favorite games, actually, Left 4 Dead 2, was there, and they had multiple computers set up next to each other so you could play co-op together. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Paul, what do you know about metal games? Metal, like M-E-D-A-L. I didn't know what the heck that meant until I started researching this. Ditto. (laughs) I've heard them described as gambling simulators. Yeah. Gambling's mostly pretty much illegal in Japan, if you Mm -hmm. don't count the pachinko way they get around that. Right. So a lot of people just kind of play gambling-type games in game centers. Yeah, so the way they get around those laws is you're not gambling with actual money. You exchange your money for these metals, they call them, basically like little arcade token, you know, metal coin sort of things, and then you use those to play, and... There are a bunch of different types of metal games, but I saw that the two most popular are the gambling type, where you can play basically casino games. They have stuff like roulette, poker, blackjack, slot machines, even like horse racing on a screen. Yeah, I've seen that. Another popular type is coin pushers. I've seen those in the US too, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So they're like these platforms that are moving back and forth 
And when you put coins in there, they sit on the platforms and you have a chance of pushing other coins off of the platform and then you get those coins. So, you know, the gambling element in these games, you're not winning money, you're winning more tokens that let you play for longer. Yep. You'll generally see an older crowd hanging out on the floor with the metal games. That would make sense. Just kind of whiling away the day. Yeah. I know we've mentioned Purikura before. That's short for Printo Krab, Print Club. They're basically photo booths. Go in with a friend, take some pictures, and then you can customize your pictures. Why didn't we do that? I don't know. I have kind of an embarrassing story about those. The, the one time I went to an arcade and tried to do one of those, just, yeah. just, you know, just to try it out, I walked into this one, and I put in like, I think they're usually like 400 yen for two sets of pictures. Put in my 400 yen, and then I realized it was like out of order. Like ah. it, it didn't even work. Ah, you just and then wasting I just, your money. I sheepishly walked away and I'm like, well, <laughs> screw that. <laughs> but yeah, they usually have a different theme, so you can choose what kind of look you're going for. If you want to look like a fashion model or an idol or you know have beauty makeup or whatever. Yeah, it's not just a take your picture. Like it yeah. might have a green screen in the background, so it could put any background behind you. You can do all sorts of edits to the pictures after you've taken them to make it look awesome. Mm-hmm. And then they print the pictures on stickers so you can put them on stuff. And these machines get super creative. I've even heard there's machines out there where as you're taking pictures with your friends, on the side where the camera is, there's like video of anime guys like cheering you on and like saying good job as you take your pictures. That's fun. Yeah, we need to get some stickers next time of us together. Yeah, we should. You know, it's like I put one on my phone, you know? Yeah. A bunch of hearts and sparkles <laughs> and make ourselves all pretty. I'll sneak a baseball bat on there and you'll be like, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. We were going for the fashion model type of look, Paul. What are you doing? <laughs> some arcades might also have retro games. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of arcades that have these are like specialized. They only do retro games. Yeah, retro themed arcades. Mm-hmm. Some of them focus just mostly on the games. Like it's just an arcade with a bunch of retro games. Some of them, the whole atmosphere they try to do retro. Even the snacks you buy are vintage candy or the Coke comes in a glass bottle like it would have in the 50s. That's cool. So they go for like the whole experience. I like that. You'll find a lot of stuff like Street Fighter 2 and all the classic arcade games that people love. Or if you're looking to try out the original Space Invaders, they might have that. Or Pac-Man, stuff like that. There are sometimes simulator games too like train simulator where you get to Mm. drive a train. Yeah. I saw a video where one arcade had a bunch of race car tracks and they also had a little area where you could work on your little race car. So I think people like built these themselves. And you're talking about like actual real life tracks. Yeah. Like these cars were like a foot long or something and they were racing so fast around these tracks. I couldn't believe people were actually controlling them. And then they had a slick track where everybody was just drifting their cars around the whole thing. It was so cool. It was so much fun watching. Huh. I don't think I've ever seen that in person, but in those Yakuza games I've been telling you about on on PS4, I've been playing, there's a series of games, Yakuza, and uh, 
one of the, like basically in these games, you're running around Tokyo or Osaka and you can actually go to arcades and then there'll be these places where you can race cars like that. I guess that's what that's based on. I'd never seen that in person. Yeah, it looks really cool. Nice. We should also probably mention those membership cards. Yeah. I didn't know this, but apparently you can save progress with these cards. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. So if you're like at an arcade at closing time and you're like deep in the shooting game, it just saves your progress because you have a card. Yeah. I mean, you can save custom settings too. If you have preferred sound options or, you know, you want to set the volume at a certain level if you've unlocked bonus content that you want to be able to use in the future, yeah, you can that's store cool. that all in this card. And I'd, I'd seen the pads on arcade games where you can tap the card, but I'd never figured out like where you could get those. But basically, each company has their own type of card. So if you're playing games from a bunch of different companies, you might end up with a few different cards. And you can get them... Mostly just at the larger game centers. If you go to the information counter, they might have a machine right next to that where you can buy a card for 500 to 1,000 yen, you know, 5 to $10. So if you're going to be spending a lot of time in arcades, that might be something to look into. Yeah. I saw there's some arcades too where you can pay for the games with a Suica card. Oh, I haven't seen that. Which is the card you can use to pay for trains as well and... And like, I mean, you can use it at, uh, at convenience stores and stuff, vending machines, kind of just like a prepaid cash card sort of thing. Yeah. That'd be so cool to be able to load that up and just play arcade games with it. Yeah. You don't have to have your, your pants sagging down with all the hundred yen coins in your pockets. Yep. Yeah. If you're going to make a long stay, mm-hmm. you have a lot of coins. One caveat about those membership cards is you might have a little trouble figuring out how they work if you don't have a decent grasp on Japanese. Yeah. And honestly, that can be true for some of the games too, the more complex ones. But, you know, don't be scared off by that. Sometimes they'll actually have English instructions posted, especially in more touristy areas. And a lot of the games are simple enough that you can just kind of watch or just experiment and figure it out, you know? Yeah, I like racing games and rhythm games, and both of those tend to be pretty easy to figure out. Yeah. I think that was what drew me to the drumming one, the taiko one. It's like you just have two options. You hit the drum or you hit the rim, and there are different color codes. And as you're flipping through the songs, it plays the song for you, so you don't even have to be able to read the name of the song. Yeah. Just pick the one you like. Yep. All right, should we... uh... Tell everyone how to win at Claw Games. Let's do it. This is the climax of the episode. So for, let's, let's talk about before you even start playing the game, there are certain prep things that can help you out, right? Yeah. You want to just pick any machine. Right. You got to look at the position and what's inside of it and pick a machine that's got things that are gettable. Mm-hmm. And you want to look for good deals. You know, some of the games will charge 100 yen for two tries, but some of them will charge 200 yen. And, you know, you got to gauge how much you want the prize and how much it costs to play. And some of the crane games will offer you deals like it's 100 yen to play, but for 500 yen, you get six plays. Right. So you get that extra play out of your money. Mm-hmm. So once you find a machine that you like, if possible, you want to watch somebody else play before you jump in. 
And this helps you in a few ways. You learn a little bit about the strength of the claw arms, right? You find out what techniques do and do not work. And you can start to formulate a plan of how you're going to attack this thing. Also, if you're not entirely sure how the controls work for the game, this can give you a chance to figure that out. Usually, you know, Paul, you mentioned, uh, I feel like usually in the U.S. There, there's an actual joystick that lets you move the claw around. Yeah. In Japan, a lot of the time, though, you just have two buttons. One button moves the claw to the side. The other button moves the claw, you know, either to the front or the back, depending on where it started out. And you only get to hit each button once. Yeah. Like you get one chance. You don't get to take your time repositioning it before it drops and that kind of thing. So, you know, make sure you understand how the game works before you start playing. And you want to observe the claw itself. What angle does the claw open at? How many arms does the claw have? How strong do these arms look? A lot of these claw games, the claws only have two arms instead Mm -hmm. of three. So that's going to limit you a bit. Okay, so let's say you've picked a machine, you stuck your money in there, you're about to play. What kind of techniques can you use? The best looking one I saw was trying to find a pinch point. But this was specifically for a plushy type thing, and it depends on the plushy. This guy was playing a machine where the plushy had a big head and it had its arms raised. So its arms were kind of right next to its head mm-hmm. and he was getting the claw in between the arm and the head and then wrapping the other two claws around. And that just gave it a really tighter hold than if you're just trying to scoop something up. It can't slip out one way or the other because it's, it's kind of pinched between the two parts of the doll. Yeah. And he was just racking them up. He was just winning, winning, winning. Yeah, I think a good technique is to look for the longest dimension on the prize and try to grab it that way because then you don't need to rely as much on the strength of the claws to be able to lift the thing. I saw a technique they call the centerline technique. So their example was like, if you have a plushie that's kind of skinny side to side, but it's tall or long, Mm -hmm. you want to get the claws around the long dimension so that they don't need to squeeze as hard to actually pick it up. Yeah, that makes sense. I also saw the one-third rule, where if you've got something that's longer than the claw is wide, you don't pick it up right in the middle. You pick it up about a third of the way, and that way it kind of leans and won't slide out of the claw quite as easily. I saw that called the three-position technique. Okay. So, you know, you got those two claws, but then you also have the body of the claw that, you know, the arms are coming out of, and you can use that as a third contact point. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, like you said, you pick it up a third of the way down, and then as it kind of tilts in the claws, the end of the prize is going to hit the body of the claw, and it just gives you more leverage and more of a chance to keep it in the claw on its way to the prize chute. Yep. And it gets even deeper. It's not always even about winning on every claw pull. Sometimes you just have to look at the position and just know, you know what, it's not in a win a good winnable position. So you try to flip it over to a better position or move it closer to the hole that it drops through. Mm-hmm. So you're you're playing to get it two or three plays from your current play. Totally. Yeah. You gotta play the long game. And sometimes you might not even want to be thinking about how do I pick this thing up? There are other little tricks you can use. There's a 
something called the keyhole technique, where you're going to look for a loop on the prize, any, any kind of loop that you can get the claw through. Like a lot of times, a plushie will have a little loop on the top of its head, you know, so they can hang it up on a hook or something. Yep. If you can aim the claw arm to get through that loop, you have a good chance of snagging it. There's another one called the moon salt. Did you see this? No, the moon salt? Yeah, think like a somersault. So instead of actually picking the toy up in the air and moving it over to the prize chute, mm-hmm. you pick up one end of it. And then as the claw is moving towards the prize chute, you want to position it so that as it makes that move, it pushes the prize and makes it kind of do a somersault towards the prize chute. Okay. I saw that a lot, especially with prizes that were close to the chute already. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it seemed a lot easier to just flip it over the chute than to actually pick it up and try to have it dropped through the chute. Exactly. Because the claws aren't strong enough to pick it up a lot of the times. Right. You just need to pick up one end of it and then see what you can do with that. Or if you've got a little bit of it hanging over the chute, instead of trying to grab it, you try to hit it and like knock it in. Exactly. That's called an arm push. And yeah, that's a very important point is that, you know, most people, I feel like when they try for these games, they're thinking about the upward motion of the claw. How can I get the prize up into the air? But a lot of times the downward motion of the claw can be even more important. So like you said, the downward motion, you can use it to push the prize down into the chute if there's like any portion of it kind of hanging over the chute. Also, sometimes, Paul, have you seen these ones where there are, there's just tons of plushies in there, but they're set up on these like plastic shelves and they're kind of squeezed in there. So it's like you can't single one out really. You're not going to have enough force to pull one of the plushies out from the group. Sometimes what you actually want to aim for is the shelf itself. Because if you can knock one of those shelves loose, all the plushies are going to pour out of there down into the prize chute. No, I didn't even see that. I've seen this happen in an arcade, and this girl had to get a garbage bag to fill it up with all her prizes (laughs) to take them home. Like, she got tons of them. I spent way too much time on YouTube watching videos of people winning crane games or trying to win crane games. Yeah. And I feel like there were one or two that were, like, maybe not legit. Like, oh, I work at the arcade and I'm just going to make a stupid fake video of me winning. Mm, Or maybe they added it and they just like played a ton to like get the wins that they got. But uh, most of them seemed legit, like just normal people hanging out in an arcade. You know, you could tell it was just like open arcade, everyone around them. Yeah. And they'd show their failures too, show the process of how they moved it closer and then finally got it in. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like they're really designed so that you have to be creative. Like, it's not all just about chance, as much as it is with the ones that I've encountered in the U.S. and stuff. I feel like I feel like the ones in the U.S. are programmed like one in a hundred times, the claw is going to hold hard enough to let you win the thing, and you're never, ever going to win otherwise. Right, but these ones make you actually use your head and like get creative about how you're going to approach this thing. Um, I have one more. I think I would consider this more of an advanced technique. Okay. So the tips of these claw arms are usually very thin, right? There's like a little flat, thin metal piece at the end. Mm -hmm. And if you're going for a prize that's in a box, think about the flaps on the end of the box that keep it closed. Yeah. There's going to be a little gap on the edge of the flap, right? Yeah. Like they fold over 
and then right between you know the, the side of the back and the yeah yeah you, you know what i'm saying it's i know it's hard saying. to describe this stuff without a visual aid yeah. but yeah. what you want to do is aim to get the little flat metal piece of the claw into the edge of that flap and that can give you the grip that you need to actually lift that box into the air yep and it's a very i mean it's you really need to have good aim that's why i say it's an advanced technique but if you manage to get it in there you're pretty much guaranteed to get the prize yeah anything you can do to like increase the grip of the claw is going to help you tremendously but mm-hmm. you got to get creative yeah you need to observe which part of this prize can i use to my advantage to get a better grip yeah so i'm still not confident i'm going to be very good at claw games but i'm willing to give it a try yeah i just want that feeling of accomplishment when i finally get it because i personally never won one of these games <laughs> i i hate that i know the 800 yen rule now because if I spend like 900 yen and win, I'm still going to feel like a loser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but 800 yen, that's 16 tries. You know, if you use these techniques, I feel like you have a pretty good chance. Okay. Okay. And remember, if you are ever having trouble or you get the prize into a position where it's stuck, you can ask an attendant for help. You don't even need to speak Japanese or anything. Just, you know, wave them over and say, you know, reset or resetto, something like that and they should get the idea. I also saw, if you're a girl, and the attendant is a guy, you might be able to use that to your advantage. Bat your eyelashes a little bit. I have heard from multiple sources that they might take pity on you and make it really easy for you to win. Oh, okay, okay. What if the attendant's a girl? Then you better put on your best puppy dog eyes. You I'll, can do it, Paul. I'll I know you got those. I know you got those puppy dog eyes. I mean, you did say I was pretty kawaii a few episodes back, you know. Yeah, it's true. Anyways, you got any other tips and tricks for us? Because I think I'm out. I think that's all I got. Um, just the if you need visuals, you know, if, if what we're saying doesn't really make a lot of sense, check out YouTube. There's a lot of stuff there to kind of give you a sense of what we're talking about. And there are actually people on there that consider themselves crane game experts. They might have their whole account dedicated to showing you how to win crane games. So yep. just prepare yourself before you walk into one of those places and should be able to get to a point where you have some confidence. And actually, if you're really serious about becoming a crane game pro, Paul, did you know there's actually a professional organization, the Japan Crane Game Association, that will teach you how to win these things. And if you pass their class, you get a certification as a crane game master i did see that i did indeed i thought there were three levels of certification sounds right you get your first level you go back you take another class yeah that's pretty cool yeah so you're in japan you want to go experience the awesome thrill of a game center where are you going to go how are you going to find a good arcade well, if you're in a major city, like we said earlier, there's big arcades everywhere. And honestly, when you're inside, to me, they feel kind of similar, maybe because I don't know arcades well enough. But I feel like almost you could go to any of those big box arcades. But there's a bunch of small towns that have little indie arcades. There's the retro arcades that are a little bit smaller, if that's your style. And there's also some really famous and well-known arcades. I quoted the... uh 
manager of Mikado earlier uh, about the COVID restrictions. That's just outside of Shinjuku in Tokyo. And that specializes in fighting games. It's known as like the mecca of fighting games for all arcades in Japan. So that'd be a cool one to check out if you're into that. There was also a place I saw called Super Potato. Yeah, I saw that too. <laughs> it looks like on the lower floors, they sell retro video games. Yeah, and consoles, like old consoles too. There's a giant Game Boy that you can actually play. Hmm. There's apparently a throne of games made of Sega games, old Sega cartridge games. Cool. They made a throne that you can go sit on and take a picture. <laughs> the Game Master. Just sit on that throne. (laughs) Yeah, so that just looked like a really fun, cool place to go. Yeah. Yeah, Super Potato, I saw that on the top floor, there's also a small arcade there, and you can play some old retro games too. Yeah, yeah. If you're in Tokyo, the three big places I would recommend, or the big areas anyway, are Akihabara, Ikebukuro, and Kabukicho. All three of those are big entertainment areas. You're going to find a lot of arcades there. Um, Like I mentioned, around Akihabara Station, there are a bunch of Sega arcades, and one of them is specifically focused on VR stuff. Try VR. VR is great. (laughs) In Odaiba, there's a place called Joypolis. Did you see that? I did, yeah. It looks really cool, and I, I think I tried to get there on my last trip, but I didn't. But it's more than just an arcade. It's like a whole amusement park. So they have rides and stuff, but there's also they also have a lot of arcade games, including cutting edge stuff like VR. Try VR. VR is great. They have a game called Tower Tag VR, actually, that looks really cool. It's kind of like laser tag, but in VR, you're in this virtual world. Okay. And if you can't get to Japan, but you really want to try your hand at one of these claw games, there are actually websites you can visit where you can play them remotely. I just blew my mind. I don't even know what to say. Yeah. Like there's a video camera trained on the game you control it from your computer, and if you win prizes, they'll ship them to you. That's crazy. Isn't that cool? All right. Uh, crane games for the COVID world. Yeah. And if you're only interested in the prizes and you don't even want to play the game, there are websites where you can actually buy you know, these limited edition prizes from the Crane Games too. Like There are people that their job is to go win all these prizes and then sell them on the internet <laughs> to the rest of the world. I bet. That's what probably all the ringers and the videos I was watching were doing. Yeah, you get that third level certification and now you're you're a full-time crane game player. Yeah, you pull like eight of the same plushie out of a machine and sell them online. Yep. Well, that's all I got, Paul. Yeah, I think we gave a pretty good idea of what to expect and look for in game centers in Japan. I think so too. Well, if you want to see some pictures from Japanese arcades, check out our Instagram Our username is SJP Podcast. I'll be posting stuff there. If you want to reach out to us, you can send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. Paul, what are we talking about next time? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about the Chubu region of Japan. You know, going into my research for that, I didn't really know a ton about the Chubu region. But once I started getting into it, I realized I've actually spent some time there. And you and I made a a couple stops there, too, on our way between Tokyo and Kyoto. Yeah, uh, same here. I uh, was like, what's in the Chubu region? Well, a lot of stuff is. (laughs) Yeah, should be a fun one. It sure will. Thanks for listening. See you next time.